So we're in First Peter chapter 5, and I shared last time about the success of, of a country music singer, Merle Haggard, and, and uh, then his end of his life statement, there's a restlessness in my soul that I've never conquered, not, without, not with motion, marriages, or meaning. It's still there to a degree, and it will be till the day I die. And we looked last time at uh, what Haggard was simply expressing was what the world of this Babylon system offers. Big promises for chasing the wind. Temporary highs with nothing to show for it in the end. And how Peter, as he's writing to persecuted, exiled Christians in modern day Turkey, knows they have far more than that. Things may have looked bleak. Their leaders were getting worn. The churches were wearing thin. But there is an eternal nature to who they were in Christ that would start their engines every day if they would remember that and believe it in faith. So after chapter 4, verses 12-19 through 19, about persecution, he writes now in 1 Peter chapter 5, to strengthen the churches by laying out authentic pastoral ministry to the teams of pastors and the faith families scattered in difficulty across this geographical region of Asia Minor so that the church of Jesus Christ would advance even in hardship for the glory of God. And we saw last time in verse 1 that pastoral leadership starts with our identity with Christ. Our identity with Christ. And Peter introduces himself as, I who am a fellow elder. An elder is a pastor. There's two offices in the New Testament. Um, pastor and deacon. And, and uh, you can see these in Philippians 1. Sometimes they're called overseers or bishops. But it's the idea of a pastor. And, uh, and there were teams that were installed in the churches that were planted in the New Testament of pastoral teams here. And Peter has such a prominent place in the building of the early church, especially as you read in the early chapters of Acts, one of the twelve, an apostle of Christ, given much authority, and he says, I'm just a persecuted pilgrim pastor, just like you, a fellow elder. Then he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Something that he had tried to talk Jesus out of when he was at a uh, walk with Jesus uh, uh, and, and real life and the disciple. Um, but now he says, I've seen and I bear witness to those who, uh, who will hear of the suffering of the Messiah on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is always before me. It's imprinted in me. It's formed deep in my DNA. I am crucified to that cross myself. The cross before me, the world behind me, I bear this message for the building up of the church. And he says, I go by the way of the cross. It's called me to suffer in the same way as my Savior. I'm going to follow that. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he says, I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says, I'm going forward too. I'm not just looking behind, I'm looking ahead. I go fueled by the cross. I'm identifying with the sufferings of Christ as a fellow pastor because I am also a fellow partaker of the glory that will come someday. And about to be glory that will be soon revealed as the return of the risen Messiah comes closer. And when He comes, John says, we shall see Him like He is. Peter had a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he didn't share that glory. But there is coming a day soon that Peter knew for these suffering pastors to thrive in Babylon, they needed to see the crown of glory they would share with the chief pastor. And that identity kept him going. And he wanted that to keep the pastors in Asia Minor going as well, to pastor the flock they're responsible for because it was God's sheep, not theirs. And we looked 
the application for ourselves. Whatever your calling is, whatever your vocation, whatever your abilities, however God has gifted you, your primary calling, whether you are plowing snow or shoveling cement, right, is to be an obedient disciple of Christ who is rooted in your identity that was given to you in Christ. That when God saved you, when He called, when you called upon Him in repentance and faith, He made you a partaker of His very own divine nature. And He wrapped you in His perfect righteousness. And He sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to live in you and rule your life with His power. And He declared that nothing can move you out of God the Father's hand. And the risen Son of God would be with you all the way through the end of history. And whatever your work and task, and whatever your circumstances, or whatever you've been assigned, whatever responsibilities you have, you have an imprinted ID that began with a totally new mind and heart that God's given you specifically to radiate His glory. Salesman, stay-at-home mom, business manager, fisherman, engineer, farmer, Youngest child, parent, husband, single parent, etc. You identify with Christ and His sufferings and His glory. It's what God declared you to be that will never change. That's what He wants you to understand from verses 1 and 2. My Messiah is a real person. He's in me, and I'm in Him. And so I work out of that. Well, you might wonder what the next verses here, verse 2 and 3, and the time I have left here, what the relevance of this passage is for you. He's talking about this is what pastors are to do. I'm not a pastor. You might say, well, I'm going to give you three reasons at the end. But as you listen here, uh, I I hope you see this passage here as as a heart motivations checklist for serving the Lord, whatever you're in. The second thing I want you to see here, besides identifying with Christ. Here, his ministry is, is pastoral leadership shepherds for the right reasons. For the right reasons. We walk in his steps. So Peter here says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Serving as overseers. That word overseers is the word episkopos. Uh, here, it's the, it's the idea of a bishop. It's, it's another name for pastor. It's the idea of overseeing the growth and grace of the flock that is among you. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which you purchased with his own blood. First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy three one says, "If anyone desires the office of a bishop, that's the same word, an overseer." And then he lists the qualifications for a pastor. So serving as overseers here. Now, how are they to serve as overseers? Well, he's going to give, uh, "Don't do this. That's bad." And he's going to give a, "Do this. That's much better. That's good." My microphone just popped up. So first of all, he says. Not by constraint, but willingly. The word constraint is the idea of compulsion. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, uh, the one who sows sparingly, he's going to reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully, abundantly, he's going to reap bountifully. And then he says, and as far as giving, let everyone give as he purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That not grudgingly or necessity is the same word here that he uses in 1 Peter 5. 
Um, not by constraint. It's the idea of, I have to do this, instead of, I get to do this. I get to serve my Savior. I get to heap glory to my God. There's a really wonderful illustration of it in Philippians, uh, excuse me, Philemon, where Paul tells uh, Ones, um, Philemon, who he's writing to about this um, servant of Philemon's Onesimus, and he says, "I'm sending him back. You receive him. That's that's my own. That's my. That's what my heart wants you to do here. I wanted to keep him with me, so he would minister to me in my chains for the gospel." Paul says in Philemon, but then he says this in, in, to, to effect in verse 14. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but voluntary, out of, out of, out of, your, out of your own heart here. And that's how Paul here wants, uh, uh, Peter wants us to understand pastoral leadership, shepherding for the right reasons, that it's coming from the heart. It's not coming because there's a paycheck. Ministry isn't coming, so I get a pat on the back here. But all service is to God and I can freely serve because I love God and His grace in the Gospel. I can serve in thankfulness and joy and do it willingly rather than by constraint. You might say, well, what relevance does it have to me? Everything, right? Not just the pastor, but everybody, right? This is, we get to serve God. When there's an opportunity that God has gifted you and you have the capacity and the ability and the schedule, etc. to do here... I get to do that. That's not something that I have to do. This is an opportunity to keep earn rewards for God's glory here. All services to Him. Whatever it may be. Whether that's an official capacity or a non-official capacity. Whether that's an ongoing thing or a, an opportunity that opens for a short window here. I do not do it by compulsion, but I do it willingly. And then notice the second thing. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Now, filthy lucre is not a terminology phrase you're going to use very often today, but basically it means dishonorable gain. It means greed of gain. Greed of gain. In other words, I'm doing this because there's a temporal reward for me rather than eternal reward. That's the motivating factor. And Paul says, or Peter says, no, not that, but eagerly serving. You know in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that... Um, this was a qualification for a pastor and also a deacon in 1 Timothy 3.8 that they are not motivated by greed of, of gain here. It was, a, it was something that was written uh, also to the uh, elders that were being installed on the island of Crete in Titus 1.7 and verse 11. So it's, it's for this, not for the sake of dishonest gain, not greedy for money. It's not always serve God for temporary things here. Now, there needs to be a balance in this. We need to understand that Jesus told the disciples in Luke 10, verse 7, that a labor is worthy of reward. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 4 um, said, we have, a, we have a right here who goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does eat its fruit, who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the, the milk. Um, there, there's, there's certainly an expectation here that should be uh, a pro- provision as, 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 as available here. But, but, but Paul says this, we haven't used this. We could have, but he said we haven't used this. 
Um, Paul tells the uh, Ephesian elders in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, that those who rule uh, well to be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word of doctrine. So, yes, there's a provision that, that happens in pastoral uh, leadership, and the church has been so good in that, but that's not to be the motivating reason why a shepherd serves. But, he says, not motivated by that, but eager to serve. Enthusiastic for God's great task of His great church. To find your satisfaction in serving Christ rather than dollar signs. And I have to ask ourselves, myself, and all of us this morning, how much money would it take for you to serve God? Or, if it's not money, what are the things you crave for temporal things that motivate you to serve God. Pats on the back. And we should encourage and affirm one another, right? And the gifts, because those are things that God's gifted people for. Um, but let's, let's suppose that someone approached you with this and said, you know what, there's this need here that I see you're good at, and I, know you're, you, and I just wonder if you'd carve out the time to take care of this need. And you said, no, I couldn't do that because I have this. And they said, well, what if I gave you $50? Well, no. What if I give you a hundred? What if I give you a thousand dollars? What if I give you ten thousand dollars? Would you do it then? <coughs> now, if you could say no before, but now can say yes, what changed, right? What changed? Um, and so we need to guard our hearts about doing things for the temporal uh, rewards that may happen, accolades, popularity, etc. Who knows what it might be, what motivates you. And make sure that what motivates us, whatever it is, what motivates us is not those things, but of a ready or eager mind, because our Lord is worthy. And then the third thing he says is this in verse 3. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. <clears throat> what he's saying is this. Do not misuse the authority the chief shepherd and the Holy Spirit who has put you over the flock has given you. Um, do not be a high-handed dictator, abuse power, and abuse authority. Jesus Himself says that's how the unbelievers act, right? In Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But not so among you. Right? Whosoever great shall first be your servant. Whoever desires to be first shall be the servant of all. And then he gives this underlying foundation. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Well, Peter's talking about here is the bullying, the harshness, the excessive use of authority that, yes, still goes on in churches. And he implies that elders should govern not by the use of threats, emotional intimidation, flaunting of power, but rather by power of example whenever possible. Paul told the Corinthians, who had an issue with authority, he told the Corinthians this, not that we have dominion or power or authority over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy. By faith you shall stand. See what was going on in Israel in Ezekiel 34 was that there were people who had 
who were supposed to be shepherds, but they were um, not doing their task. And in fact, they were herding the sheep. They were scattering them because there was no shepherd. They were basically turning the sheep they were entrusted to into food for all the beasts of the field. Ezekiel 34 and verse 5. Wandering. Scattering. And God pronounced judgment on them. I'd say, well, what, what would this look like? Well, I told a story about a tour guide uh, in Israel, and he was showing the tourists uh, what shepherding looked like in Israel, and the shepherds, <clears throat> and told the tourists that they lead from the front of the sheep, they don't drive them from behind. On their way back on their tour, they're heading back to Jerusalem, back to the city, and then there's a flock of sheep, and behind that flock of sheep, there's a man shouting and he's waving a stick and driving them. And they said, I thought you said that shepherds don't do this. And he says, they don't. That's the butcher. That's the butcher. Right? Big difference, right? Big difference. Now, certainly shepherds are given authority, a delegated authority from God, because look in verse 5, right? Submit yourself. And then, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Hebrews thirteen seven and seventeen, um, where uh, there is a there is a command to those in the flocks to obey the leaders that are over you, right? Where they watch for your souls. Um, there's there's a, there's an authority of the word of God, the keys of the kingdom here that are handed, but that authority is only in the word of God to command, to rebuke, to exhort, to reprove, to correct. It's never for personal advantage. Instead, to serve for the flock's good so that as the writer of Hebrews says, they, your shepherds may give a, a good report of Jesus Christ with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. James 3.1 says, Not many masters should you have, knowing that we shall receive a stricter and more serious uh, judgment here. And so, there is not to be abuse and a use of the authority that God gives for one's own benefit. Now, I want you to notice a very interesting word that's not apparently obvious in the English here, but it is in the original, verse 3. There is being lords over God's heritage. The word is kleros. It's a Greek word here. Um, and uh, it means your lot, your allotment, your portion given to you by the chief shepherd. It's used in Acts one eleven when they cast lots. Here. And the idea here, sadly, is where we get the word clergy, which ironically is the opposite of what this word means. This word heritage, kleros, where we get the word cleric and then clerk and clergy, as we distinguish it from the laity, sadly, here, is the idea that all are God's clergy. All of us are God's clergy here. Ministers of God here. And we're to see ourselves as ministers together. And that's why there's not to be this abuse of authority. So here's what not to do. Now what to do. But being examples to the flock. The word examples is an interesting word in ancient times. What they would do when they would um, uh, mint coins is they would take a steel rod, or iron rod, they didn't have steel then. Take an iron rod, and they would have the imprint of what they wanted the coin to look like on the end of that rod. And they would take that, um, that, uh, that coin that had been minted and they would stamp that image on that coin. Here. Give an impression. It would leave a print after a blow had been struck. That's the word that's used here. It's a pattern or a model of something else. 
Paul told Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but instead what? Be an example to the believers, not just in word, right? In word, in what? In deed or conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In Titus chapter 2, he told uh, Titus to in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing an integrity, a reverence, an incorruptibility, sound, solid speech that can't be condemned, that someone who is an opponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ might be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you here. And that's the idea. In other words, to show what true obedience of faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. And it's what Jesus' commission was, right? Teaching them to obey whatever Christ has commanded them. Uh, This example here is so that there is multiplication. So there is reproduction in the church of rising leaders. Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard of me from among many witnesses, commit or trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This imprint is to be imprinted and be imprinted and to be multiplied here. And so... What you have then, this example would be what 1 Timothy 3 tells us. And Titus 1 tells us. That's the example. That kind of character. So really in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, what you have is a profile of ministry in the vineyard of God. Doing ministry for the right reasons. And when you would boil all these things down, you know what you have? The humility of Jesus Christ. Humility. That's what all these things are. Humility. Notice his motivation for it in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. In other words, this. You are directly responsible, pastors, over these flocks in Asia Minor, to Jesus because the flock belongs to Jesus. Peter calls him, in chapter 2, verse 25, that shepherd and bishop of your souls, that word bishop, overseer again. You're the, he's the shepherd and bishop of your souls. John calls him the good shepherd. Hebrews calls him the great shepherd. And Peter here calls him the chief shepherd. The archetype. The arch-shepherd. And Peter says the chief shepherd, he's going to return someday. He's going to have a reward that far outweighs any suffering and any bad and any difficulty of laboring in the vineyard. It's in the vineyard. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be hard. You're going to get bit. You're going to get manure on you. But Peter says, look ahead. Look ahead. And look what he says in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. A crown of glory. He's picturing the crown of victory given in either the, the um, athletic events of the ancient Greeks or the crown that would be given to military victors. Here. And he says this reward will be given by the arch-shepherd, Jesus, to the under-shepherds here that have been faithful. And this is a reward, a crown, that unlike those that were given in ancient Greek history would not fade away. That word not fade away is a word that was taken from a known red blossom called an amaranth flower. That if you picked it and put it in water, it would perk up very quickly. It didn't wither or fade easily. 
And a crown given to the winners of the ancient Greek games was made of oak or ivy leaves that honestly would wither and fade by the day's end. But the victor's crown, which Jesus, the master shepherd over the other shepherds would give, would never wither or fade. It would last them for all eternity. What a reward. What a reward. So never feel bad for your pastor. (laughs) Great. Um, This office here of pastoral leadership is a hard task. There are few called to do it. But with great responsibility, there is great reward. You might say, okay, well, again, how does this apply to me? Well, number one, it helps you keep me accountable to you as you know what God has called me to do. Number two, it will help you keep an eye on men who might already be doing this that we can recognize here that God is calling to this great work as well. Number three, it also may help you if God calls me to another place or I drop dead for the next person who comes in to know what qualifications to look for. And number four, this. This passage can be used indirectly to apply to any situation to which any Christian is called to serve one another for another's spiritual growth. Because all of us are pastoring and shepherding people by extension. Some of that is a lifetime with your family and kids, right? Some of that are certain temporary periods of time of people that God brings across your path. There will be times um, when you will have long-lasting relationships of discipleship and ministry, and there will be times where God just puts you in your life for, there for a short time here. But regardless, what you need to understand is whoever is exercising a spiritual service to others here can learn things from this passage about what it means to do it for the right reason. If you're a Sunday school teacher, Bible study teacher, and you go out of your way to work harder and shepherd one of your students closer, you are exercising a ministry that is comparatively what is described here. When you are a concerned church member who visits a struggling brother or sister, you are extending this shepherding pastoral ministry. And in these, and you can, I mean, we don't have time to give a long list, right? But in these and other similar situations, the words of Peter are important. Do not do this out of compulsion. Do not do this for temporary gains. Do not do this for power or influence. Instead, do this for the glory of Jesus because of the gospel of grace that's been shared on you and do it willingly, eagerly, and as an example. Serve Him for the right reasons, not because you have to, but because you get to. He allows you to participate in His great work, not for what you might get, but because of what Jesus already gave and will give you, because it's not for your own glory, but it's for His to see His sheep multiply, His name be seen as great, the world to know that He is good, 
and the gospel to show its saving and changing power. And so therefore, my beloved brethren, right? Be steadfast together. Be unmovable together. Be increasing together for the work of the Lord. Because what? We know our labor in this vineyard is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray.